0: welcome to the commentary magazine daily podcast today is friday december 18th 2020 i am john Podhoritz, the editor of commentary with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john so commentarymagazine.com our january 2021 issue is up uh You heard us talk to Eli Lake about his massive and important cover piece, uh, Guilty and Framed, or Framed and Guilty. I can't even remember. It's interchangeable. Sometimes we call it Guilty and Framed. Sometimes we call it Framed and Guilty. Um, A lot of other stuff there. A few free reads asking you to subscribe, and I'm going to be making a bit of an ask later. So um, Noah Rothman uh, and and Christine Rosen, you have both been noting uh, interesting... Uh, comments by the uh, medical ethics community regarding the vaccine and who should get it. So uh, Noah, why don't you start? And then Christine, you then tell us what you found.
1: Well, there was this piece in the New York Times on December 6th that kind of flew under the radar um, and is getting some play today. And I noticed it and others noticed it. And if you read into it, it quotes three uh, medical experts, experts in medical ethics, rather, um, who are you know, delving into this issue of who should be the first to, to get the vaccine. And obviously, the, you know, the choice, the, the tension here is between the most vulnerable population, 65 plus, who make up 80% of the deaths of this thing, and frontline healthcare workers who are caring for people with COVID. And there's some legitimate tension there. Um, and the, one of these medical experts, a guy named Harold Schmidt, who, uh, does health policy for the university of Pennsylvania provided a quote, which is just positively ghastly. The quote is as follows. Older populations are whiter. Society is structured in a way that enables them to live longer instead of giving additional health benefits to those who already had them. We can start to level the playing field a bit. Now I warned you people about social justice and here it is. This is social justice. This is a dis- determination being made by this guy based on nothing more than accidents of birth. That assume that these individuals have had a lot of advantages that are undue un- accru- uh, unduly accrued and should be leveled, should be denied them certain privileges like the right to perhaps survive this crippling pandemic. Because that that's justice. That's cosmic karmic justice. and he is the executor of it. the self-appointed executor, the deliverer of this kind of justice, kind of hubris on display here is truly appalling. not just you know the real dispassionate um, you know, eugenicism on display here. But you know, this is also what we've come to expect from the expert community over the course of this thing, the so-called dispassionate, um, you know, enlightened, uh, approach to this, you know, this pandemic displayed by people who have so you know, who believe themselves to have a, the finger on the pulse of science and fealty to the science are doing anything and everything but listening to the science. They're trying to engineer society.
2: By the way, you know, just by its logic alone, this wouldn't be limited by the pandemic. If 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 the idea is that life expectancy um, is unfair when you when looked at um, uh, through various demographic lenses. Then why stop at the pandemic? It's not fair. And you can level the playing field, you know, uh, under all sorts of conditions. Let's see. Ideology predates the pandemic.
3: Right. I was just going to say, yeah, this this has been kind of infecting both public health and medicine for for quite a while now, but it, it. that quote in particular threw into stark relief, just what happens when that goes mainstream. That's the mainstreaming of something that's been going on for a while. The thing that struck me is that, uh, particularly because they're quoting an ethicist, a bioethicist here, is that you can very clearly point to scientific facts and evidence that this pandemic is is dramatically more dangerous for people over the age of 65. We know this. This is a certainty. What I see in this argument about the social justice uh, distribution of vaccines is an argument of something a lot more slippery. It's about how do you define essential? So I think we could all agree healthcare workers need to get vaccinated. They should be at the front of the line. The elderly should be at the front of the line. This guy's sort of saying, but what about all those essential workers? Well, who gets to define what is essential? Because in some places it's going to be based on race. Maybe it'll be based on income. Maybe it'll be based on whether you have access to the healthcare, uh, field. There's all kinds of ways in which that can become an incredibly slippery, i.e. politically motivated way to determine something which we shouldn't be determining in that way, because that not only does that undermine uh, confidence in the public health system, but it's, it's doing, I think Noah's point uh, to Noah's point, which is crucial. It's actually weighing the worthiness of individual lives. You're saying some lives are more important than others merely because of the color of your skin. And that is the opposite of what our system in the United States should be based on.
1: And just, just briefly, you know, the ambiguity of racial categories and uh, individuals who have uh, certain what could be defined as frontline healthcare jobs, a therapist is a frontline healthcare worker. Um, those can be fudged. Those can be manipulated, and people with access to the system and access to power can manipulate that those connections in order to you know fudge the system. What is not ambiguous at all is age as category. It is it is clearly defined, and it's not something that you can just go ahead and, and fudge unless you know, like you're you know a really good. Uh, I guess some sort of criminal mastermind who can change your own records. But that's the sort of thing that would be really genuinely um, enlightened and egalitarian and not something that could be subject to the kind of manipulation that people with access to higher echelons of society can can do to get themselves access to the same and, early. And it
3: would help the people that these social justice people claim to want to be helping because there is a higher percentage of uh, minority elderly than there are white elderly, right? It's almost double the African-American and Hispanic, non-Hispanic or Hispanic uh, population of the elderly living in poverty is higher than the percentage of, of non Hispanic white people, it's still a fairly small percentage, actually, but even you could still make your social justice argument by doing it by age. It's not as if it won't help vulnerable people.
0: But you're also just slicing the social justice pie thinner and thinner and more and more and more with um, Talmudic distinctions. Like, Christine, you dug up this quote from uh, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Mark Lipsitch. Um, who uh, argued uh, that uh, teachers should not be considered essential workers, right? Uh, If a central goal is to reduce health inequities. So here's what he said. Teachers have middle-class salaries and are often white and they have college degrees. Of course they should be treated better, but they are not among the most mistreated of workers. Well, first of all, treated better than whom? Second of all, they are not among the most mistreated of workers. So we are now. The vaccine is now a reward for well, workers who have a tough.
3: Well, and by time. that measurement, you know who should be at the front of the line: white men, because they have the most dangerous and risky jobs in our country. So, like, even by his own logic, he's going to put you mean the white loggers, men. Loggers, yeah, like yes. ice ice yes. road truckers. They die, yeah. and they have the most yeah. dangerous jobs. So give yeah. it to the white men then, by that
0: logic. Right. I mean. So, I mean, the central problem here is one could see a a totally fair solution to this problem were it the case that everyone in the country were going to take the vaccine, which is a lottery. Once you vaccinate everyone over the age of 75 or everyone over the age of 70, you have five times more likely to get sick and die from, from COVID. So once you take all of them and... You eliminate the possibility that Noah is uh, laying out of a of a mastermind <laughs> criminal uh, changing their age in the in the database. You could do what we did with uh with the draft in 1969. You could have a lottery and basically people get it according to their birthdays. But of course, it's not going to be mandatory. It's not going to you know we we cannot force everybody to take. The vaccine as no would say like you can't do that because what if somebody can't go that day what happens to their place in line if you know the kids need to the kid is sick or they're taking care of a of an infirm relative or something like that so uh when you start using when if you want to go to a totally egalitarian system that is blind to everything the only way to do that, and this by the way, included ancient voting if people remember this about the Greeks that the way that you picked leaders in you know in, in Athens at one point was by lot uh because how else could it be fair you you know any any citizen could be you know head of the council, so uh you became head of the council by lot, assuming that the lots were you know
1: uh, in me I mean first.
0: Anyway, um, but this is an adoption of a radical Jesuitical theory of the 1960s. It was called the preferential option for the poor, um, which the Society of Jesus came up with as part of its move to the far left, uh, particularly in, in Latin America and in Africa, in support of radical marxist regimes that um, that it was uh the teaching of Jesus that you know the the last shall be first right that 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 uh, that in his radical new understanding of society that that society needed to take ex- extra special care of of the poor and the widowed and the orphaned and all of that um, but this was used not as a form of charity or a form of understanding how to dis- distribute charitable goods or something like that. It was used as a cover for the support of radical Marxist regimes that were themselves supposed to level societies and, you know, make the last first by by fiat. And of course, the end result of that is the immiseration of everyone and not no particular help for the for the least among us and there, there was no pre- the preferential option for the poor was tyranny in the end that was that was sort of what happened and why people stood against it and we're we're sort of seeing this now so so it's this rule by expert who are going to categorize who deserves the vaccine morally better right and i, I don't know how this is going to be you know done and it all presumes that everybody in the country is gonna to want to take the vaccine, which we know is a not true, so that, you know, it's not fair. Um if you ha- if you if you establish a preferential option for the poor that says every, you know, ahead of the line are, you know, uh poor people, black people, and all of that, and then they are less likely to take the vaccine. And we already talked about this because I don't know if it's really true, but they're less likely to take the vaccine because of historical Inequities in, in well, you know, the experiments Yeah.
3: Telling them that it's going to kill them if they take it. Right. I exactly.
0: Like, <laughs> exactly. So, what happens then? Like, you're like, okay, you're at the head of the line. Go get vaccinated. They're like, oh, you really you're, you want to force me to get vaccinated. What else is in that vaccine? You know, sort of the paranoid American politics then comes to the fore. That's an unanticipated consequence of all this. Um, but it is interesting because it's like, Gee, I didn't know that medical ethics involved white rich people at medical schools who are in a field called medical ethics that is, you know, uh, has a very peculiar and disturbing provenance over the last century. Since it was, you could argue, medical ethicists who said that one should uh, involuntarily sterilize uh, people, people like who are socially it, yes. undesirable. In the
1: 1920s and 19... Yeah, eugenics. 1960s. 1960s, yeah, 1960s in right. Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that and was the moral. In Saharan Africa. This yeah. was the population. This is the, yeah. the result of the population bomb theory. That was the moral thing to do. Right. They can't take care
3: of children. Well, there's another there's another backlash that this will most definitely create because we've seen it with the mask debate, right? There there will be a backlash among the people who, if they use social justice as the as the yardstick for who gets the vaccine, they'll look at that and say, I think correctly. Well, the whole system is corrupt. Why should I listen to what any of them say? Why should I get vaccinated? It's actually a protest not to get vaccinated at this point because clearly this is a there is this risk. I think not only of the people who, you know, get to the front of the line because they happen to have a certain color skin, but then everybody who's mad about that is also going <laughs> to react. I mean, it's just the, the, the chain reaction effect of that kind of social justice, uh, so-called ethics mongering is is vast. I mean, it's just, it's going to be very harmful.
2: So there's some reason um, to think we might be saved from some of this because the the vaccine may not be as scarce um, a commodity as as we had initially thought for two reasons. First there, the the actual doses in the hands of medical professionals can be stretched um, perhaps as much as a a quarter uh, uh, further.
0: It's the the Pfizer Hanukkah miracle. That's right. Was that the, the oil lasted for eight days and it turns out that Pfizer was over, uh, was overfilling the vials by, I think somebody said as much as 40%.
2: 40 percent, not not a quarter. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, right. I mean, no, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I, I I misstated. Yeah, that's twenty five percent. And there's also reason to believe that um, among the shots, among the vaccines that require two shots, um, the first shot alone um, can provide sufficient protection from the disease, which right. would, which would in fact mean doubling the the amount of doses out there.
1: But as we discussed yesterday. You're not liberated from the healthcare regime that we've lived under for the last year, even if you're vaccinated. So it doesn't matter. If if you're vaccinated, you have.
0: If you get vaccinated early, arguably you have twice the responsibility to have a mask sewn into your (laughs) cheeks because you have benefited from early mask from early dosage, and you must provide a good example to all the other. Childlike morons in America who don't care about anything and deserve—that's well, it, make- isn't it?
1: I mean, it's, it's so much. It, it's
0: rooted in a kind of condescension. No, really, that mm-hmm. was con- that was condescension
1: on, on my part from public health care experts. Yeah, not, that's you know, that is the, the field. That you're of public
0: health is a field of condescension. The entire field is based on the notion that they need to tell people how to behave because people can't make these determinations for themselves safely. Right? So that's the famous thing where, uh, there were 50 deaths in the United States. Uh, this is like 20 years ago. There were 50 deaths in the United States of people suffocating their children because they were drunk and rolled over on them when they were asleep in bed with them. 50. There are, you know, uh, there are like 5 million live births a year in the United States. So at any given moment that a child would be in bed that, who was uh, that small could be 15 million. So it was like, say, 50, 15 million, five deaths out of 15 million, and the uh, American pa- pa- Pediatric Association advised parents not to allow their children to sleep in bed with them. Because of five deaths in the United States from massively drunken, probably obese parents rolling over on a, on a child so that that is where you have the public health attitude at its finest, that, uh, that you extrapolate from tiny bits of data involving the most reckless and insanely irresponsible people and then impose an orthodoxy on Everybody else, in order to prevent this statistically nearly impossible thing from happening, that is the public health world that is that is exactly what the public health world does in for example more children' stuff right that the American Pediatric Association boy, this is funny now advising that parents do not allow their children at all to you look at any screen until they're two. It should not look at it. this was this was the guidance when my when my oldest daughter was born 16 years ago. No screens of any sort until they're two. Why? Because some people put their babies in front of a screen for 10 hours a day while they go off and do other things. So other people who might be inclined to let their kids watch a cartoon while they cook while they make dinner, are then told they're being reckless and irresponsible. And in the end, if you ask pediatricians or people who do this why, they, it's like, well, they're trying to make people aware that it's bad. And so a prohibitionist strategy induces guilt in everybody. But of course, the guilt that it is induced, people who are induced to this kind of guilt, are the sort of people who would feel guilty about using the
1: TV as a babysitter anyway and do not need the lecture. It it is so shocking and myopic and ideologically blinkered that we're even having this discussion because what did we do for the last year? We shut down all of society and for what to save the most vulnerable populations from death. And
3: after a year of this, now we're talking about, well, maybe they should die because they have the wrong skin color. Well, and the the arguments (laughs) that you see uh, about this, the, the kind of ethical parsing, or I should call it unethical parsing where they're like, well, you know, We should think about quality of life. So as soon as you hear people start talking about quality of life in the context of bioethics, you should be frightened because that's- Very frightened. Be afraid, be very afraid. And that's what you're seeing here. It's like, well, they're already old. Their quality of life isn't great. They might not live that much longer anyway. Why not protect this, you know- you know, middle-aged person who has a different color skin. That would be more qualitatively good for society. They've already had, they've already lived in paradise. They're white. They're white in 85. Like
0: they, they were, they won the lottery. So don't, you know, they can't win the lottery twice. That would be wrong. It's not fair to let people win the lottery twice. That is,
1: and that is something that I wrote about in my book, is that the root of this ideology is a hostility toward luck. A presumption of there's different kind of uh, philosophical conceptions of what luck is, but just generally the idea that society needs to correct for the advantages you've as- presumably accrued over the course of your life that are n- not of the result of your own labors or efforts that they need to be taken from you. And people, n- there needs to be an enlightened committee to judge that which is yours. That isn't yours. That isn't your isn't that you're due. Um, it's, it's, not an, un it's a tried philosophy, it's a failed philosophy, and it's one that that is embittering and uh, and really noxious. And people who believe it really perceive themselves to be very enlightened and have the best of intentions and are not villains. They're, they're not caricatured evil people. These are people who want to bestow their beneficence upon society. It's just that their beneficence is a horror show.
0: Okay, well, we should get back to this question of the meaning of luck. But let me uh, talk to you about our sponsor today, the Bonson Group. You've been hearing me say it that in the world in which the Bonson Group is a leading player, the world of financial advice and financial management, that is a pretty lousy world in which a lot of financial advisors are lazy, they're ignorant, uh, they don't tell you the truth about how little they know. And if you want to talk to them about real policy questions, monetary policy, the intersection of public policy, And markets, the way the Fed behaves, they know as much as your nine-year-old in the end. Bonson Group comes to you with a perspective that has been generated by serious research, by decades of interest in these issues, by an understanding of how markets work, by an understanding of how public policy and markets (coughs) come together, excuse me. Um, And... They, with two point five billion in assets under management, uh, they have proven to their clients time and again that they know what they're doing, that they can hu- they can husband your resources, they can make them grow, and that they can instruct their own people and their clients in the best ways to make their money work. So uh, two great websites, two great web products the DC today.com and dividendcafe.com, both of which you should read, subscribe to offer market advice, daily, uh, daily examinations of what's going on in the markets that day. Uh, so you really should try and contact the Bonson group, read the DC today.com and dividendcafe.com for the best advice in the industry and an antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that is the financial services realm. That's the Bonson Group, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. So this war on luck, I want to sort of get get into it a little bit, because uh, a lot of conservative thinkers have said, uh, most recently, both Bill Buckley and Jonah Goldberg have made a very important point of saying that one of the key qualities in living a good life or understanding how to how to understand our lives as being good is gratitude that we need to have gratitude for what we have and that this is something that's true for everybody in every realm of life that um, there are people you have to be grateful to understand what's good about your life requires gratitude for the conditions that have made the things that are good in your life possible and that can be money. If you have money, it can be love. If you have, if you don't have so much money, but you have good family, it can be good health. It can be any infinite number of things that are the things that you look at and say, this is one of the things that makes my life worth living. And that the doctrine that we are seeing play out here and have been seeing play out this over the past year Um from the 1619 Project, through the Black Lives Matter theorizing, through all of this public health stuff, is an attitude that says, I I should not have any gratitude. That only these other people, the people who get more than I do, have any reason to be grateful. I've been screwed. This world, this society, this life is screwing me, and I deserve reparations for my existential screwing. And aside from it being, you know, a, a lie, particularly in the United States, that people are somehow screwed uh, by the by the conditions of their of their birth. In fact, they are more fortunate than any other people have ever been on the on the in the history of this planet to have been born here, because it's the only place on Earth that you really have a chance to transcend your circumstances you know with a without a lot of without you know millennia of historical baggage attending to your social you know your ability to to rise through the social ranks um it's just a horrible way to live your life because it's 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 emotionally psychologically unsatisfiable it is unsatisfiable to achieve a condition under which your screwing is ameliorated
1: because your screwing can never be ameliorated. I if mean, that is, the, is generally a conspiracy theory, right? Which, had, which gave way to Bolshevism.
0: Yeah, but I mean, th- so that's that. That is that is a that's a that's a political example of how ingratitude can lead to you know just the most horrendous possible results. And there are of course times in which you should not be grateful and and uh, and complacent if you are living in a tyranny or you're living under circumstances where. Uh, you know, whatever, but you cannot, but I'm yeah, anyway, Abe.
2: But you still can't, I just, I mean, just to back up for a second, I mean, I think people underappreciate the degree to which gratitude is really kind of the basis for conservatism in that uh, conservatism is, is about, as it's the word implies, um, conserving, you know, what, what is good, you know, st- staying with the, the thing that, that works and that is good. And even if you live under a tyranny, um, the way you oppose a tyranny is to hold fast to the the, the, the good things and protect them, and um, seek to get a, a a to sort of fight for a larger space for them, for your freedom, for uh, your 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 faith, your you know your 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 family. Um, that is that is actually um kind of a, a tool. Um, to fight uh, uh, uh tyranny I mean, I, i'm thinking of it in part because of uh, i just reviewed Rod Dreher's, um live not by lies which which i don't know if it speaks specifically about gratitude i don't remember but um that that is a that is a starting point for undoing tyranny as well
3: well That's the also- I, 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 the just to that point, there's there's a, that's also why conservatives have typically been quite suspicious of utopian schemes as well, and not just in the political realm. And there's a weird utopian a strain of assumption in the aggrieved population. Now, the kind of 1619 Project one, which is that and that's why they rely so heavily on this notion of systemic racism and systemic problems. The ideal being some post uh, post racial world where where, you know, the system has been recreated by them that's utopian, right? To get there, we have to blow everything up. But once we're there, it assumes a kind of utopian uh, system that would work on their behalf. So they have to blow up the one that we actually have, which is based on, you know, hundreds of years of experience.
1: Yeah, but specifically, though, I mean, that sort of paradigm gets you to a place where, okay, if we have to correct for the un- unearned advantages that are accrued by birth, then you have to go literally every aspect of society, you have to reengineer neighborhoods so that people are, are more integrated along racial and class lines, you have to eliminate private child Rearing, because that's a, a source of all, just about all inequities in life. You have to correct for a natural and innate talent. And l- like Harrison Bergeron, affix, you know, uh, weights to the legs of people who are athletic and make uh, make people who are attractive and wear masks. I mean, this sort of downward social leveling and it is always downward. It's never providing opportunity for those who, who deserve it and have not had advantage to of it. It's always a sort of class-based envy that attacks people who have achieved that which perhaps they shouldn't have achieved in the minds of people who were possessed of far less talent than them. Uh, and it is always going after <laughs> these people and, and there's no limiting principle to it because it in- involves every aspect of society. So every aspect of society is vulnerable to them. Uh,
0: so uh, let's move on from this very high flown conversation into, into sort of naked, raw, lousy American, current American politics um, to discuss a moment that uh, we should all enjoy and be celebrating, uh, which is that um, uh, there has been a reversal in the, uh, in the unambiguous upward climb of the extremely ungrateful person who should be incredibly grateful to be an American, no, no one, none other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, <clears throat> whom this society has treated so cruelly that she became a, a member of Congress at the age of 28, um, from her august perch as a bartender, uh, just awful that this such a thing could happen in a society so nightmarish. Just sort of like her colleague, um, you know, uh, her colleagues Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, particularly Ilan Omar, who you know managed to come to the United States at the age of twelve from. Uh, Somalia ended up in Congress at the age of fourteen, at, at the age of forty, um, and nonetheless considers America a horribly nightmarish and unequal society that deserves to be destroyed. So the two of them can drop dead, but before they drop dead, uh, Noah, something happened to AOC um, yesterday that is is worth noting, and 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 as I say, take take you got to take your moments of celebration where you go.
1: Yeah, this is this is a good one, I guess. Um, so she was recent. She, I think, this week she gave an interview to a reporter that was like, "You know, we need new leadership," and you know, she, she didn't commit to not supporting uh, Nancy Pelosi, or uh, though she doesn't have any uh, influence over the Senate. She did mention um, Chuck Schumer too. You need a new generation of leaders. She kind of agitates for this, you know, it has been for some time. She's the vanguard of the Democratic Tea Party. They told us shouldn't happen, wouldn't happen. Democrats love governing too much to have this sort of insurrection. Um, But the steering committee, the Congressional Steering Committee, which does appointments, appoints you to various committees within Congress, um, had their shot at AOC. She wanted a slot on energy, on the Energy Committee, presumably to uh, destroy America's capacity to support itself. Um, through power and create some sort of a utopian ideal where we run on biomass. I don't know. But she wanted that post and she didn't get it. And she didn't get it to the tune of like 46 to 13. It's anonymous vote. We don't know who voted. But according to Axios's reporting, people don't like her because she's trying to generate primary challenges against them. She wants them all out of Congress. So she doesn't have a lot of friends in this institution. She's a very powerful cultural figure, but she has no influence over the levers of government.
3: And we should treat her that way. Yes. But Instagram, Instagram followers do not translate to power in Congress is actually, it warms the cockles of my heart to <laughs> get yeah. that played out in real time. And they love her, right? They love her celebrity, but then behind
1: closed doors, she's a problem and really annoying. And they mm-hmm. kind of wish she would shut up.
0: Well, and who, and who won her seat, who won her seat was a fellow New York who won that position was a fellow New York Democrat, uh, uh, Kathleen Rice, um, right. who, uh, you know, is famously centrist, famously very, hard. very centrist, extremely, extremely centrist <laughs> to the extent that, you know, uh, obviously the Overton window has moved the center pretty far to the left, but nonetheless, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that was, and because it's anonymous, that's where we have to take it seriously. Because they do allow still for people to do these things in the privacy of their own heads, uh, that is an indication of the degree to which her approach to politics is is not being
3: shared by... Bye her. Bye and one, her. one more beat on that, actually, because that is a really important point, because some of us, including me, have spent a lot of time arguing with extremely well-meaning liberal friends who say things like, well, I know she's overexposed, and she does these silly videos, and she plays video games with people, and the press covers it, and that's ridiculous. But when it comes to the to Congress, she is just amazing. She goes to these hearings, and she says amazing things, and she's so well-prepared, and everybody thinks she's a rising star. I, I like forwarded that Axios story to everyone, because one of the things that pointed out is that she actually doesn't... Think that way. She literally didn't bother to talk to the people on the steering committee. The other woman, uh, Ms. Rice, worked that committee. Like she knows how power is distributed and how it works, and she did the job. That is the job. AOC has no interest in actually governing or doing the job. And that I think it, this is a this is the first time I've seen a real real evidence that the institution itself is not impressed by the the young upstart who tells tells them how they should govern. I mean, this
0: reminds me of Yuval Levin's very important point about the decay of American institutions, which is that uh, institutions were formative. They, you went into them and they turned you, they matured you. They taught you how the system worked. And it was from inside institutions that you grew to positions of responsibility and power. And now increasingly, institutions are platforms on which you stand in order to enhance your own brand right so we we know this from the performative politics of the republican caucus and you know people like matt gates and all of that who are who who the way they handle politics is uh that they just seem to be auditioning for a show on on fox eventually or you know uh, right uh, and in fact some did quit right i mean who. Who was the Republican congressman who quit so that he could have a Jason Chaffetz quit so that he could be a pundit? Um, you know, uh, Thad McCotter did the same thing, and then his punditry career collapsed. I mean, like they're they're going after something else, and um, this is very it's bad for America. But I mean, inter- interestingly enough, the institutions themselves, to the extent that they resist their own discrediting. And their use as this platform rather than this uh, molder um, are going to hasten their own collapse. And the Democratic caucus has taken a stand for the idea that, you know, this is hard work. Like running, helping to run the House of Representatives is slow, boring, late nights arm twisting you know sitting counting
3: whip counting like taking this- orders it's a lot of taking orders from the people above you too yeah, you it yeah Amber, right? anyway, anyway it's it it is work
0: so and it's done on Inst- it isn't done on Instagram and it isn't for your own glory except if you put in the time you can be somebody who has a very significant impact on the way the United States constitutes itself over a long period of time. You can be Nancy Pelosi, you can be Steady Hoyer, or you can be the single most successful politician of our time, Mitch McConnell, a pure institutionalist who doesn't care about his reputation. I mean, I know that sounds terrible, like it's like you should care because you know our reputation our name is all we have. But he doesn't care about how the media writes about him. What he cares about is the furtherance of his ideological beliefs and his party's power, which is what he is supposed to do as the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, Let me now take another break because I want to ask you, uh, with all humility, if you will consider in your end of your giving, giving to Commentary, the sponsor of this podcast, Commentary Magazine. 75 years old, a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, publishes this uh, monthly, one of the last remaining print monthlies in America, certainly among the most august. There are only two or three or four of us left who are uh, intellectually serious and committed to ideas and to the furtherance of the American intellectual experiment. And of course, we have our daily blog, uh, whose primary authors are uh, Noah Rothman and Christine Rosen, and this daily podcast, uh, which we've been doing daily since the beginning of the uh, the outset of the pandemic, and have been have did four or five years before that. Uh, like all uh, intellectual pursuits in the United States, uh, we are not profit making. We do not seek profit that we would certainly enjoy it. but we, uh, we have we have our eyes set on something else. and we have survived and thrived and, and managed uh, in these uh, complex times through the generosity not only of our subscribers. and I certainly hope that you are all subscribing, but also the generosity of our of our donors. Um, a contribution to commentary is tax deductible. If you go to slash donate, uh, all you have to do is fill out the form and put in your credit card information and you're done. Uh, we would be very grateful if you would do that. Um, we we need the support. We need your not only your customer subscribers, but your support as uh, uh, people who understand that to do this every day, to produce the blog every day, to produce the magazine every month. Um, Costs money, costs time, costs effort. Uh, we supply this podcast to you for free. And if there is any way you could see in your heart to uh, helping us uh, and expressing some gratitude for what we've been doing here, maybe through um, through some through some, uh imasonary generosity, we would be most grateful. So with that, commentarymagazine.com slash donate. Thank you very much. Uh, Noah, uh, incoming senator with the greatest name in history, uh, Tommy Tuberville, former uh, college coach, uh, football coach, and because really, he does sound like, uh, you know, basically he's a character on Thomas the Tank Engine. Something
3: from The Music Man or
0: something. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or or Thomas the Tank Engine or, or Captain Kangaroo. It's like, look, it's Tommy Tuberville. Anyway, he is the incoming senator from Alabama, having defeated Doug Jones for the seat once held by Jeff Sessions. Um, and Tommy Tuberville, of course, a Trumpian, Trumpster, Trumpy, Trumparoo, Uh, will be sworn in, I think, on the 3rd of January, and has now indicated what, Noah? He's
1: intimated. He hasn't said outright. Intimated. I'm sorry he said indicated. He may challenge in the Senate when they certify the results of the 2020 elections. He may challenge them. And this would go directly against what Mitch McConnell has said his caucus, his conference rather, should do in part because such a vote would split the conference and essentially give them a a lose-lose scenario, vote for the results of the election and suggest you're against Trump and split the Republican Party in half, vote against it and fight this losing battle in which you're just going to create or make yourself into a rump and further this notion that the election was uh, falsified so the details of the election were falsified somehow in this fanciful idea. I kind of want to approach this briefly with a digression about AOC because I think they thematically dovetail. So maybe it's a little fanciful, but AOC is somebody with a lot of ambition, not a lot of friends, and a constituency that's something of a paper tiger. And that's a real dangerous condition. New York state is losing two congressional seats next year. The commission that will determine that is independent, but not independent of the legislature, not politically independent, not independent of the governor, most surely. And she's making a lot of noises about challenging some very important people in New York politics to maybe find her way up in the Senate. She could find herself on the wrong end of redistricting next year. And but she's approaching this from this belief that she is very powerful but it's entirely illusory. She's not powerful. Um, she's this this conception of power but she's operating from a position of weakness. And that's the theme that you see now from the, the 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 Trump rump, the people who are really hanging on to this thing. The president could be operating from a position of power here. He's the president. But instead he's he's taking these he, him and his team are acting like insurrectionaries. They are attacking power. Tuberville would be attacking the Senate Majority Leader and in in like his conference from a position of weakness. Donald Trump seems to want to go after Fox News, right? And his the you know the chariots he's riding into that battle are OAN and Newsmax, which are decidedly second rate in terms of actual the the power that they can wield and muster, and the and the, and the people, the number of people who watch these things that just make up a fraction of the number of people that watch Fox News. And so you're going after these power centers from a position of weakness when you have authority, when you could do that from a much more authoritative position, um, which is kind of hard to understand unless you really perceive yourself to be, you know, steeped in this victimization ideology, that you perceive yourself to be constantly beset by forces that are greater than you that you can't possibly understand and that you are this victimized personality and you are always in a position of weakness, even when you're the president of the United States
0: what Mitch McConnell has said or said apparently in a private call is we have to do everything to prevent this from happening because then every Senator is going to be put in a, in this horrible position uh, and of having basically to vote against Trump. That is to say, I, I really do think in the end they have to, they have to affirm the electoral college results or they, or if they do it in in their own state, <laughs> They will be invalidating the results of their. They will be disenfranchising the voters of their own states. They cannot do that. It will it will delegitimize their own elections. Not not that all of them were elected in 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 2020 because uh, only a third of them were. But um, but Tuberville would be putting them in the position of casting this one vote, of creating the conditions under which they might have to, they might they will be put in a position of having to say no. Now maybe this would be good for the country. Uh, uh, McConnell doesn't think so, and I think he's got because what happens then? Like, do the do the Republicans who are up in 2022 and who are scared of Trump? Do they say, oh, "All right, I'll vote to say that you know the the Biden you know the electoral college count shouldn't be accepted because I I don't need that kind of trouble in 2022." This is a slippery slope down which we could go for the rest of our lives, in which the gut root position of each party will be that any president of the other party is not deemed legitimate and institutionally is voted against at those moments when you have to affirm the good working order of our system. And Trump doesn't care. He'll want this because he wants the loyalty oath. Um now, maybe McConnell can impo- you know can impose on him and say, "Look, it's not going to happen anyway. I don't know why you want to have yet another occasion on which there will be a controversy that you will lose. But to the extent that you know Trump uh, wants fealty from the Republican party more than he cares about anything else in order to keep his options open for twenty twenty four that's the that's the position that these senators might find themselves in and the question is can 10 of them or 12 of them call tommy tuberville and say if you want to have a pleasant experience being uh, in this caucus you are not going to do this to us or we will make sure that you are on the toilet committee and that you will be in the toilet the entire time that you were in the you know you were you were Senate.
1: No one wants to be on ethics. <laughs> ethics <laughs> yes six yeah. is a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a long time to be on the ethics committee. And you know they're gonna have to do that like he will have to be you know that is one of the very few things that McConnell can do in the herding cats thing is deny people any access. Now, of course, if it's really if somehow it should happen that you know one Republican wins uh, in in Georgia and the other loses. Uh, you know, tuber of every single Senator becomes the most important person in America. So, you know, uh, who knows, but, uh, that we need all this like a hole in the head. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess the whole point is nobody gets out of this alive. Nobody gets out of this alive. That's what happened in 2015 when Trump came down the escalator. Uh, it's it's so all going to, it's going to play itself out as it plays itself out.
1: But it, it- I mean, isn't this just sort of, you know, back to Plato's cave, like they're they really just don't know what the landscape looks like now. And Donald Trump is still president. He's still the head of this movement. But he's sort of defenestrated and his power's sort of leaking out of the balloon. And they're not really sure what the landscape looks like. So you know, maybe Tuberville's not the most masterful political strategist looking at the landscape and saying, you know, how the chessboard is going to play out in the next five or six moves. So he's just operating under the assumption that it's Trumpism forever. But his audience is who? It's Newsmax. It's AON. It's a smaller audience. So oh, I just, don't think
0: you should assume it's just that. I mean, you well, know, certainly not. If his voters if his voters think that the election was stolen from Trump. He is not, you know, he is he is doing their will by saying the stuff that he's saying. I mean, here's what Tuberville said. Hold on, where is, the, where is his actual quote? He said, you'll see what's coming. You've been reading about it in the House. We're going to have to do it in the Senate. And then he said, you know, what's happened is, it's impossible. It's impossible what happened. But we're going to get that corrected.
3: Okay, so he's basically the shoe bomber, isn't? You'll see what the shoe bomber said when someone asked him, "Like, what yeah. do you doing? Why are you lighting your shoes on fire to bring down a plane?" He's like, "You'll see." I mean, there, there's a strange, there's a there's a sort of threat behind it, right? But the, but I think you're right to question whether that there's any power behind the threat. I mean, he must think there is, but. He, sh- he shouldn't be going, he shouldn't start his Senate career threatening his colleagues. I mean, well,
0: he shouldn't, but you know, again, if he thinks that that's what the people who voted for him want, if he believes, and this again is Plato's cave, if he believes that 75% of the Republicans in his state think that the election was stolen and that the worst crime in American history has happened, then it's incumbent on him to refuse to seat the electors. Um. I guess I mean that's that's why I say you know we're just gonna have to watch this play out. you know, the country chose Trump and you know as, as, as HL Macon said, it'll get what it wants and it'll get it good and hard. Like the choice isn't over until the 20th of January at noon. Um, and, uh, and that's that's just uh, that's just the way things are. I do want to say one thing to end on an up note. The upnote is again the vaccine is coming again as 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 Abe said uh, despite this uh, fear that there was it was there was going to be scarcity uh, in product that apparently there's forty percent more of it than people realize and um, my uh, sister who lives in Tel Aviv uh, is now scheduled for her first shot on January tenth. So I will be providing, when we get back after vacation and stuff, I will be providing real time uh, tales of her symptoms and uh, and recovery. A friend of mine who was a doctor in New York who is very heavily involved in the uh, COVID response at his hospital got the first of the two shots uh, yesterday or the day before and reported um, the vaccine really is working. I have a huge headache. So everybody prepare for a headache. Uh, maybe on the first day, um, and you know that's. The th- I'm saying this because, of course, people are going to say, "What? No one said there was going to be a headache." <laughs> you know, oh my God, there's a headache. That means they have to suspend delivery of the virus immediately, uh, the vaccine immediately. Um, this extraordinary story that one person in in Alaska, one person in Alaska, had some kind of reaction to the shot and it becomes a nationwide story one person
3: mild anaphylactic reaction too. yeah
0: yeah right and you know the thing about anaphylactic reactions is that it's never clear what it is that causes them i mean i know as a as a as, a, as an allergy parent um so you yeah, know obviously know what causes them if it's a peanut or it's sesame or it's this or it's that but you know other things can cause very and by the way the mild anaphylactic reaction can be that your lips swell not that okay. you, you know, not that you actually need an EpiPen or that you go into the hospital. I mean, it can be something as low as that. But anyway, I'm just saying that uh, that uh, my sister is on track to get the uh, to get the vaccine. She's the first person I've heard of. Uh, Israel, uh, of course, a small country. Israel could be basically out of uh, into herd immunity by the beginning of February because there are. You know there are only eight million people in Israel, and they they did go early into buying up. You know, so you could really do it there. Um,
1: so maybe- I think everybody has one of these people in their lives who like kind of makes forces you to convince them to get vaccinated. It's like, well, you know, there's these there's these side effects that are just exactly like a flu shot, but I don't get flu shots either, so I have no idea what they are. And like, they, you could be sterile at the end of this thing, and you're not allowed to question the vaccine, right? Because that would be, you know, an in a mission that your uh, that your elite credentials are falsified, and so you know, I'm going to be this c- contrarian person. So convince me. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. You're fine. Go ahead. We're going to get to herd immunity without you.
0: Well, it's also right, there's heart. also that thing. It's like, well, I'm going to take it, but I'm going to I'm going to be a little slow. I'm just I'm going right. to take it later. Good. <laughs> right. But honestly, if they don't want people to take it later, they better start saying that you don't have to wear a mask after you're vaccinated. What's the reward for early vaccination once they actually, I guess, as as Abe said, like a lot of this health talk that we started with is based on the presumption that there's going to be a shortage. And therefore we're going to have this kind of triage, social triage about who gets it early. And that may really not be, be the case logistically. And so, you know, uh, there should be an incentive for getting it early. If people are going to be stupid and not get it or fine, don't get it. So get COVID. What do I care? I mean, I'll be vaccinated. So what do I care? I only care if you make me wear a mask when I am in no threat and I don't, and I'm not going to infect anybody else. Anyway, that's me. But what do I know? Uh, Have a great weekend, everybody. Uh, I just wanted to say that we are going to do podcasting, I guess, uh, through Wednesday of next week. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then we are going to take a break um, until uh, January 4th. So we will be off from, you know, Christmas Eve day. Uh, We would start earlier, but basically uh, New Year's is a Friday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we'll start up on the fourth of January, so please make your plans to be entertained some other way. Go to commentarymagazine.com slash donate to provide us with the Merry Christmas that we even even us even us Jews deserve, <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again on Monday. So for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.